Prayer is an ordinance of God in which a man draws near to him, and therefore it calleth for so much the more of the assistance of the grace of God to help a soul to pray as becomes one that is in the presence of him. It is a shame for a man to behave himself irreverently before a king, but as sin to do so before God. And as a king who is wise is not pleased with an oration made up with unseemly words and gestures, so God takes no pleasure in the sacrifice of fools. It is not long discourses nor eloquent tongues that are the things which are pleasing in the ears of the Lord, but a humble, broken, and contrite heart that is sweet in the nostrils of the heavenly majesty. Therefore, for information, know that there are these five things that are obstructions to prayer, and even make void the requests of the creature. Number one, when men regard iniquity in their hearts at the time of their prayers before God, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Psalm 66, 18. When there is a secret love to that very thing which thou with thy dissembling lips dost ask for strength against. For this is the wickedness of man's heart, that it will even love and hold fast that with which the mouth it prays against. And of this sort are they that honor God with their mouth, but their heart is far from him. Matthew 15, 8. Oh, how ugly would it be in our eyes if we should see a beggar ask an alms with an intention to throw it to the dogs, or that should say with one breath, Pray bestow this upon me, and with the next, I beseech you, give it me not. And yet, thus it is with these kind of persons. With their mouth they say, Thy will be done, and with their hearts the opposite. With their mouth say, Hallowed be thy name, yet with their hearts and lives they would like to dishonor him all the day long. These be the prayers that become sin, and though they put them often, yet the Lord will never answer them. Number two, when men pray for show, to be heard and thought somebody in religion. These prayers also fall short of God's approbation and are never like to be answered in reference to eternal life. There are two sorts of men that pray to this end. First, your trencher chaplains that thrust themselves into great men's families, pretending the worship of God when in truth the great business is their own bellies, and were notably pointed out by Ahab's prophets and also Nebuchadnezzar's, who, though they pretended great devotion, yet their lusts were the things aimed at by them. Second, them also that seek repute and applause for their eloquent terms, and seek more to tickle the ears and heads of their hearers than anything else. These be they that pray to be heard of men, and have their reward already. These persons are discovered thus. 
They eye only their auditory in their expressions. They look for commendation when they have done. Their hearts either rise or fall according to their praise or enlargement. The length of their prayer pleaseth them, and that it might be long, they vainly repeat them over and over, but look not from what heart they come. They look for returns, but it is the windy applause of men, and therefore they love not to be in their chamber, but among company, and if at any time conscience thrusts them into their closet, yet hypocrisy will cause them to be heard in the streets, and when their mouths have done going, their prayers are ended, for they wait not to hear what the Lord will say. Number three, a third sort of prayer that will not be accepted of God is when either they pray for wrong things or if for right things, that the things asked for might be spent upon their own lusts and made out to wrong ends. Ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lusts. James 4, 2 and 3. Ends contrary to God's will is a great argument with him to frustrate the petitions presented before him. Hence it is that so many pray for this and that and yet receive it not. God answers them only with silence. They have their words for their labor. That is all. Objection. But God hears some persons, though their hearts be not right with him, as he did Israel in giving quails, though they spent them on their lusts. Answer. If he doth, it is in judgment, not in mercy. He gave them their desire indeed, but they had better have been without, for he sent leanness into their souls. Woe be to that man that God answereth thus. Number four. Another sort of prayers there are that are not answered. Those made by men and presented to God in their own persons only, without their appearing in the Lord Jesus. Though God hath appointed prayer and promised to hear the prayer of the creature, yet not the prayer of any creature that comes not in Christ. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, said Christ, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. John 14.13 Though you be never so devout, zealous, earnest, and constant in prayer, yet it is in Christ only that you must be heard and accepted. But alas, the most of men know not what it is to come to God in the name of our Lord Jesus, which is the reason why they live wickedly, pray wickedly, and also die wicked, or else that they attain to nothing else but what a mere natural man may attain unto. Number five. The last thing that hindereth prayer is the form of it without the power. 
It is an easy thing for men to be very hot for such things as forms of prayer, as they are written in a book, but yet they are altogether forgetful to inquire with themselves whether they have the spirit and power of prayer. These men are like a painted man, and their prayers are like a false voice. They, in person, appear as hypocrites, and their prayers are an abomination. When they say they have been pouring out their souls to God, he says they have been howling like dogs. Hosea 7.14 When therefore thou intendest to pray to the Lord of heaven and earth, consider these particulars. First, what thou wantest. Do not as many who in their words only beat the air and ask for such things as indeed they do not desire, nor see that they stand in need of. Second, when thou seest what thou wantest, keep to that, and take heed that thou prayest feelingly. Objection. But I have a sense of nothing. Then by your argument I must not pray at all. Answer. One, if thou findest thyself senseless in some sad measure, yet thou canst not complain of that senselessness but by being sensible. There is a sense of senselessness according to thy sense, then, that thou hast of the need of anything, so pray. And if thou art sensible of thy senselessness, pray the Lord to make thee sensible of whatever thou findest thy heart senseless of. Call upon me, and I will hear thee, and show thee great and mighty things that thou knowest not, that thou art not sensible of. 2. Take heed that thy heart go to God as well as thy mouth. Let not thy mouth go any further than thou strivest to draw thine heart along with it. David would lift his heart and soul to the Lord, and with good reason. For so far as a man's mouth goeth not along with his heart, so far it is but lip labor only. And though God calls for and accepteth the calves of the lips, yet the lips without the heart argueth not only senselessness, but our being without sense of our senselessness. And therefore, if thou hast the mind to enlarge in prayer before God, see that it be with thy heart. 2. Take heed of affecting expressions, and so to please thyself with the use of them that thou forget not the life of prayer. I shall conclude this use with a caution or two. First, Take heed you do not throw off prayer through sudden persuasions that thou hast not the Spirit, neither prayest thereby. It is the great work of the devil to do his best, or rather his worst, against the best prayers. He will flatter your false, dissembling hypocrites and feed them with a thousand fancies of well-doing when their very duties of prayer and all other stink in the nostrils of God. So he stands at a poor Joshua's hand 
Zechariah 3.1, to resist and discourage. Take heed, therefore, of such false conclusions and groundless discouragements. And though such persuasions do come in upon thy spirit, be so far from being discouraged by them that thou use them to put thee upon further sincerity and restlessness of spirit in thy approaching to God. Secondly, as such sudden temptations should not stop thee from prayer and pouring out thy soul to God, so neither should thine own heart's corruption hinder thee. It may be thou mayest find in thee all those things before mentioned, and that they will be endeavoring to put forth themselves in thy praying to him. Thy business then is to judge them, to pray against them, and lay thyself so much the more at the foot of God in a sense of thy own vileness, and rather make an argument from thy vileness and corruption of heart to plead with God for justifying and sanctifying grace than an argument of discouragement and despair. David went this way, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. Next, a word of encouragement to the poor, tempted, and cast-down soul to pray to God through Christ. 1. That scripture in Luke 11, 7, and 8 is very encouraging to any soul that doth hunger after Christ Jesus. In verses 5 to 7, he spake a parable of a man that went to his friend to borrow three loaves, who because he was in bed denied him, yet for his importunity's sake he did arise and give him, clearly signifying that though poor souls through the weakness of their faith cannot see that they are the friends of God, yet they should never leave asking and knocking at God's door for mercy. Mark saith Christ, I say unto you, although he will not arise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity of restless desires, he will arise and give him as many as he needeth. Poor heart, thou criest out that God will not regard thee. Thou dost not find that thou art a friend to him, but rather an enemy in thine heart by wicked works. And thou art as though thou didst hear the Lord saying to thee, as in the parable, Trouble me not, I cannot give unto thee. Yet I say, Continue knocking, crying, moaning and bewailing thyself. I tell thee, Though he will not arise and give thee because thou art his friend, yet because of thy importunity he will arise and give thee as many as thou needest. The same in effect you have discovered in the parable of the unjust judge and the poor widow. Her importunity prevailed with him. And verily mine own experience tells me that there is nothing that doth more prevail with God than importunity. Is it not so with you in respect of beggars that come to your door? Though you have no heart to give them anything at their first asking, yet if they follow you, bemoaning themselves, and will take no nay without an alms, you will give them. 
for their continual begging overcometh you. 2. Another encouragement for a poor, trembling, convicted soul is to consider the place, throne, or seat on which the great God hath placed himself to hear the petitions of poor creatures, and that is, a throne of grace. It is the mercy seat which signifies in the days of the gospel that God hath taken his abiding place in mercy and forgiveness, and from thence he doth intend to hear the sinner and to commune with him, as he saith, And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. Exodus 25:22. Poor souls, they are very apt to entertain strange thoughts of God and his carriage towards them, and conclude that he will have no regard unto them when he is upon the mercy seat and hath taken up his place there on purpose to hear and regard the prayers of poor creatures. If he had said, I will commune with thee from my throne of judgment, then you might have trembled and fled from the face of the great and glorious majesty. But when he declares he will hear and commune with souls from the mercy seat, this should encourage thee and cause thee to hope nay, to come boldly, freely, unto the throne of grace, that we may there obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16 3. By this mercy seat is Jesus Christ, who continually besprinkleth it with his blood. Hence it is called the blood of sprinkling. When the high priest under the law entered the holiest where the mercy seat was, he might not go in without blood. Why so? Because though God was upon the mercy seat, yet he was perfectly just as well as merciful. Now the blood was to stop justice from running out upon the persons concerned in the intercession of the high priest, as was signified in Leviticus 16, 13-17, to show that all that unworthiness which thou fearest should not hinder thee from coming to God in Christ for mercy. Thou criest out that thou art vile, and therefore God will not regard thy prayer. It is true, if thou delight in thy vileness and come to God out of a mere pretense. But if from a sense of thy vileness Thou do pour out thy heart to God, desiring to be saved from guilt and cleansed from filth. With all thy heart, then fear not. Thy vileness will not cause the Lord to stop his ear from hearing of thee. The value of the blood of Christ which is sprinkled upon the mercy seat stops the course of justice and opens a floodgate from the mercy of the Lord to be extended unto thee. Thou hast therefore boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, Hebrews 10, 19 and 20, which he has made to thee that thou die not. When God sees the blood, he will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you. A word of reproof. 1. This speaks sadly to you who never pray at all. 
I will pray, saith the Apostle, and so saith the heart of them that are Christians. Thou then art not a Christian that art not a praying person. The promise is that everyone that is righteous shall pray. Thou then art a wicked wretch that prayest not. Jacob got the name of Israel by wrestling with God, and all his children bear that name with him. But the people that forget prayer, that call not on the name of the Lord, they have prayer made for them, but it is such as this. Pour out thy fury upon the heathen that know thee not, and upon the families that call not on thy name. Jeremiah 10.25 How likest thou this, O thou that art so far off from pouring out thine heart before God, that thou goest to bed like a dog, and riseth like an hog, and forgettest to call upon him? What wilt thou do when thou shalt be damned in hell, because thou couldst not find in thine heart to ask for heaven? Who will grieve for thy sorrow that thou didst not count mercy worth asking for? 2. This rebukes you, that make it your business to slight, mock at, and undervalue the Spirit, and praying by that. What will you do when God shall come to reckon for these things? Did God send His Holy Spirit into the hearts of His people to the end that you should taunt at it? If God sent Korah and his company headlong to hell for speaking against Moses and Aaron, do you that mock at the Spirit of Christ think to escape unpunished? Did you ever read what God did to Ananias and Sapphira for telling one lie against it? Also to Simon Magus for the undervaluing of it. It is a fearful thing to do despite unto the Spirit of grace. Compare Matthew 12.31 with Mark 3.20. 3. As this is the doom of those who do openly blaspheme the Holy Spirit in a way of disdain and reproach to its office and service, so also it is sad for you who resists the spirit of prayer by a form of man's inventing, a very juggle of the devil, that the traditions of men should be of better esteem and more to be owned than the spirit of prayer. Hath God required these things at your hands? If he hath, show us where. If not, as I am sure he has not, then what cursed presumption is it in any pope, bishop, or other to command that in the worship of God which he hath not required? Thus is the spirit of prayer disowned and the form imposed, the spirit debased and the form extolled. They that pray with the spirit, though never so humble and holy, counted fanatics. And they that pray with the form though with that only counted the virtuous. I shall conclude this discourse with these words of advice to all God's people. Believe that as sure as you are in the way of God, you must meet with temptations. The first day, therefore, that thou dost enter Christ's congregation, 
Look for them. When they do come, beg of God to carry thee through them. Be jealous of thine own heart that it deceive thee not in thy evidences for heaven, nor in thy walking with God in this world. Take heed of the flatteries of false brethren. Keep in the life and power of truth. Look most at the things which are not seen. Take heed of little sins. Keep the promise warm upon thy heart. Renew thy acts of faith in the blood of Christ. John Bunyan, 1660 A.D. Study number five, Saving Faith, Its Evidences. The great majority of those who hear this will doubtless be they who profess to be in possession of a saving faith. To all such, we would put the question, Where is your proof? What effects has it produced in you? A tree is known by its fruits, and a fountain by the waters which issue from it. So the nature of your faith may be ascertained by a careful examination of what it is bringing forth. We say a careful examination, for all fruit is not fit for eating, nor all water for drinking. So all works are not the effects of a faith which saves. Reformation is not regeneration, and a changed life does not always indicate a changed heart. Have you been saved from a dislike of God's commandments and a disrelish of His holiness? Have you been saved from pride, covetousness, murmuring? Have you been delivered from the love of this world, from the fear of man, from the reigning power of every sin? The heart of fallen man is thoroughly depraved, its thoughts and imaginations being only evil continually. Genesis 6.5 It is full of corrupt desires and affections which exert themselves and influence man in all he does. Now the gospel comes into direct opposition with these selfish lusts and corrupt affections, both in the root and in the fruit of them. Titus 2, 11 and 12. There is no greater duty that the gospel urges upon our souls than the mortifying and destroying of them and this indispensably if we intend to be made partakers of its promises. Romans 8.13 and Colossians 3.5-8 Hence, the first real work of faith is to cleanse the soul from these pollutions, and therefore we read, They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Galatians 5.24 Mark well, it is not that they ought to do so, but that they have actually in some measure or degree. It is one thing to really think we believe a thing. It is quite another to actually do so. So fickle is the human heart that even in natural things men know not their own minds. In temporal affairs 
What a man really believes is best ascertained by his practice. Suppose I meet a traveler in a narrow gorge and tell him that just ahead is an unpassable river and that the bridge across it is rotten. If he declines to turn back, am I not warranted in concluding that he does not believe me? Or if a physician tells me a certain disease holds me in its grip, and that in a short time it will prove fatal if I do not use a prescribed remedy which is sure to heal, would he not be justified in inferring that I did not trust his judgment were he to see me not only ignoring his directions but following a contrary course? Likewise, to believe there is a hell and yet run unto it, to believe that sin continued in will damn, and yet live in it, to what purpose is it to boast of such a faith? Now from what was before us in the last article, it should be plain beyond all room for doubt that when God imparts saving faith to a soul, radical and real effects will follow. One cannot be raised from the dead without there being a consequent walking in newness of life. One cannot be the subject of a miracle of grace being wrought in the heart without a noticeable change being apparent to all who know him. Where a supernatural root has been implanted, supernatural fruit must issue therefrom. Not that sinless perfection is attained in this life, nor that the evil principle, the flesh, is eradicated from our beings, or even purified. Nevertheless, there is now a yearning after perfection. There is a spirit resisting the flesh. There is a striving against sin. And more, there is a growing in grace and a pressing forward along the narrow way which leadeth to heaven. One serious error so widely propagated today in orthodox circles, which is responsible for so many souls being deceived, is the seemingly Christ-honoring doctrine that it is His blood which alone saves any sinner. Ah, Satan is very clever. He knows exactly which bait to use for every place in which he fishes. Many a company would indignantly resent a preacher's telling them that getting baptized and eating the Lord's Supper were God's appointed means for saving the soul. Yet most of these same people will readily accept the lie that it is only by the blood of Christ we can be saved. That is true Godwards, but it is not true manwards. The work of the Spirit in us is equally essential as the work of Christ for us. Let the hearer carefully ponder the whole of Titus 3.5. Salvation is twofold. It is both legal and experimental, and consists of justification and sanctification. Moreover, I owe my salvation not only to the Son, but to all three persons in the Godhead. Alas, 
How little is this realized today and how little is it preached? First and primarily, I owe my salvation to God the Father who ordained and planned it and who chose me unto salvation. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 In Titus 2.4 It is the Father who is denominated God our Savior. Secondly, and meritoriously, I owe my salvation to the obedience and sacrifice of God the Son incarnate, who performed as my sponsor everything which the Lord required and satisfied all its demands upon me. Thirdly, and efficaciously, I owe my salvation to the regeneration, sanctifying, and preserving operations of the Spirit. Note, that his work is made just as prominent in Luke 15:8 to 10 as is the shepherds in Luke 15:4 to 7 as Titus 3:5 so plainly affirms God saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the holy spirit and it is the presence of his fruit in my heart and life which furnishes the immediate evidence of my salvation. With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, Romans 10.10. Thus it is the heart which we must first examine in order to discover evidences of the presence of a saving faith. And first, God's word speaks of purifying their hearts by faith, Acts 15.9. Of old, the Lord said, O Jerusalem, Wash thine heart from wickedness that thou mayest be saved. Jeremiah 4.14 A heart that is being purified by faith, compare 1 Peter 1.22, is one that has turned from all impure idols and is fixed upon a pure object. It drinks from a pure fountain, delights in a pure law, Romans 7.22, and looks forward to spending eternity with a pure Savior, 1 John 3.3. 3. It loathes all that is foul and filthy, spiritually as well as morally. Yea, hates the very garment spotted by the flesh, Jude 23. Contrarywise, it loves all that is holy, lovely, and Christ-like. The pure in heart shall see God, Matthew 5, 8. Heart purity is absolutely essential to fit us for dwelling in that place into which there shall in no wise enter anything that defileth, neither worketh abomination, Revelation 21, 27. Perhaps a little fuller definition is called for. Purifying the heart by faith consists of, first, the purifying of the understanding by the shining in of divine light so as to cleanse it from error, second, in the purifying of the conscience so as to cleanse it from guilt, third, the purifying of the will so as to cleanse it from self-will and self-seeking, fourth, the purifying of the affections so as to cleanse them from 
the love of all that is evil. In Scripture, the heart includes all these four faculties. A deliberate purpose to continue in any one sin cannot consist with a pure heart. Again, saving faith is always evidenced by an humble heart. Faith lays the soul low, for it discovers its own vileness, emptiness, impotency. It realizes its former sinfulness and present unworthiness. It is conscious of its weaknesses and wants, its carnality and corruptions. Nothing more exalts Christ than faith, and nothing more debases a man. In order to magnify the riches of His grace, God has selected faith as the fittest instrument, and this because it is that which causes us to go entirely out from ourselves unto Him. Faith, realizing we have nothing but sin and wretchedness, comes unto Christ as an empty-handed beggar to receive all from Him. Faith empties a man of self-conceit, self-confidence, and self-righteousness and makes him seem nothing that Christ may be all in all. The strongest faith is always accompanied by the greatest humility, accounting self the greatest of sinners and unworthy the least favored. See Matthew 8, 8-10. Again, saving faith is always found in a tender heart. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six. An unregenerate heart is hard as a stone, full of pride and presumption. It is quite unmoved by the sufferings of Christ in the sense that they act as no deterrent against self-will and self-pleasing. But the real Christian is moved by the love of Christ and says, How can I sin against His dying love for me? When overtaken by a fault, there is passionate, relenting, and bitter mourning. Oh, my hearer, do you know what it is to be melted before God? For you to be heartbroken with anguish over sinning against and grieving such a Savior? Oh, it is not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it which distinguishes the child of God from empty professors. Another characteristic of saving faith is that it worketh by love. Galatians 5, 6 It is not inactive, but energetic. That faith which is of the operation of God, Galatians 2, 12, is a mighty principle of power, diffusing spiritual energy to all the faculties of the soul and enlisting them in the service of God. Faith is a principle of life by which the Christian lives unto God, a principle of motion by which he walks to heaven along the highway of holiness, a principle of strength by which he opposes the flesh, the world, and the devil. 
John Bunyan said, Faith in the heart of a Christian is like the salt that was thrown into the corrupt fountain that made the naughty waters good and the barren land fruitful. Hence it is that there followeth an alteration of life and conversation, and so bringeth forth fruit accordingly. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good fruit, which treasure is faith. Unquote. Where a saving faith is rooted in the heart, it grows up and spreads itself in all the branches of obedience and is filled with the fruits of righteousness. It makes its possessor act for God and thereby evidences that it is a living thing and not merely a lifeless theory. Even a newborn infant, though it cannot walk and work as a grown man, yet it breathes and cries, moves and sucks, and thereby shows it is alive. So with the one who has been born again, there is a breathing unto God, a crying after Him, a moving toward Him, a clinging to Him. But the infant does not long remain a babe. There is growth, increasing strength, enlarged activities. Nor does the Christian remain stationary. He goes from strength to strength. Psalm 84, 7. But observe carefully. Faith not only worketh, but it worketh by love. It is at this point that the works of the Christian differ from those of the mere religionist. David Clarkson said, The Papist works that he may merit heaven. The Pharisee works that he may be applauded, that he may be seen of men, that he may have a good esteem with them. The slave works lest he should be beaten, lest he should be damned. The formalist works that he may stop the mouth of conscience that will be accusing him if he do nothing. The ordinary professor works because it is a shame to do nothing where so much is professed. But the true believer works because he loves. This is the principle, if not the only motive, that sets him a work. If there were no other motives within or without him, yet would he be working for God, acting for Christ, because he loves him. It is like fire in his bones. Unquote. Saving faith is ever accompanied by an obedient walk. Hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. First John 2, 3 and 4. Make no mistake upon this point. Infinite as are the merits of Christ's sacrifice, mighty as is the potency of his priestly intercession, yet they avail not for any who continue in the path of disobedience. He acknowledges none to be his disciples save them who do homage to him as their Lord. Charles Spurgeon said, Too many professors pacify themselves with the idea that 
They possess imputed righteousness while they are indifferent to the sanctifying work of the Spirit. They refuse to put on the garment of obedience. They reject the white linen which is the righteousness of saints. They thus reveal their self-will, their enmity to God, and their non-submission to His Son. Such men may talk what they will about justification by faith and salvation by grace, but they are rebels at heart. They have not on the wedding dress any more than the self-righteous whom they so eagerly condemn. The fact is, if we wish for the blessings of grace, we must in our hearts submit to the rules of grace without picking and choosing. Unquote. Once more, saving faith is precious, for like gold, it will endure trial. First Peter one seven. A genuine Christian fears no test. He is willing, yea, wishes, to be tried by God Himself. He cries, "Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart." Psalm twenty six two. Therefore is he willing for his faith to be tried by others, for he shuns not the touchstone of holy writ. He frequently tries himself, for where so much is at stake he must be sure. He is anxious to know the worst as well as the best. That preaching pleases him best which is most searching and discriminating. He is loath to be deluded with vain hopes. He would not be flattered into a high conceit of his spiritual state without grounds. When challenged, he complies with the Apostle's advice in 2 Corinthians 13.5. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.